Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to say that my guest in this programme, making a welcome return visit to the podcast, is Australian novelist, long-time New York resident, and twice Booker Prize winner, Peter Carey. I had the chance to talk to Peter about his new novel, Amnesia, when he visited London recently. In the book, set in 2010, a young Australian computer hacker called Gabby releases the angel worm virus into Australia's prison system, opening the locks and thereby freeing the inmates in many places of incarceration. And because their systems are mostly designed and operated by American security corporations, the US prison system is infected too, making Gabby America's public enemy number one. The man given the task of writing Gabby's life story, in order to save her from extradition by winning the Australian public sympathy, is Felix Moore, who likes to think of himself as Australia's last-serving left-wing journalist, but is well aware that others think of him as drunk, impatient and allegedly unemployable. Felix is convinced that the angel worm is a riposte for America's role in forcing Australia's socialist government out of office in 1975 an event which has fallen victim to his nation's amnesia. Felix admits that the events of 1975 have been the obsession of my erratic and mostly unsuccessful life, as he sets out to write the story of Gabby's life and activism in relation to this long-forgotten history. This being Peter Carey, it probably scarcely needs saying that Felix is both very entertaining company and not the most reliable of narrators. Given the importance to this story of the Gough-Whitlam Labour government, which came to power in 1972 and was removed in 1975, I asked Peter to begin by describing that period in Australian history when hopes were raised and then dashed. That was such a jubilant time uh, for all sorts of Australians of different classes and different desires for their lives, and certainly for artists. Artists started to return to Australia there wasn't even a cabinet, and Gough Whitlam, the new Prime Minister, with Lance Barnard, who would be one of the cabinet ministers, sat down day after day and just made all of these decisions while the cabinet was being put together. And those was, you know, we recognised China, we brought troops out of Vietnam, we uh, it was money for the money for the arts. There was things about equal pay for equal work, commitment to Aboriginal land rights. Day after day after day, the, the, these things came out. And so it was a giddy time, having been through quite a depressing time. And if you think of the Australia that Clive James and Robert Hughes and Jermaine Greer and Bob Hughes all left, this was a different sort of Australia. And was a, and it, you know, the sixties wasn't over really. And I think it was a time in the world generally when when you, you sort of had more progressive. You, it was a period that gave, where Canada had Pierre Trudeau, for instance, and there was a period of great optimism. And so the, the, the Labour government had come. To, this government had come to power and wanted to do all sorts of things. There was, in the period in which they were in power, they they hit a time of, of enormous of uh, world inflation and you know, economic, economic problems in the world that had not been there. So a lot of what their program was was written on this. Their assumptions were not, couldn't actually be relied upon anymore. But they were they were still determined to put the program through. So that was going on, and at the same time, the United States, our dear close ally, had to somehow get their head around the fact that, uh, you know, there might be an alleged or former member of the Communist Party, might be the Deputy Prime Minister, 
and that the power of left-wing unions might be what they would not prefer, and also that wouldn't political views of the government would not sit happily with the Australian security forces who worked very closely with the United States. And, and you'd have an Australian ruling class, who, the, the, and generally people in you know, manufacturing and whatever who were, who were against them. And, this, and then there was this other thing. Like all these things, it's very complicated, but, but there was a, an American base at a place called Pine Gap, a place so secret that Australian prime ministers didn't know really what happened there. Uh, and it's still there today. And in all the, 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 the fog of war, one of, one of the issues was that there was a lease on Pine Gap, which was for a peppercorn rent, which the Americans found very cute. Who for one peppercorn we will... <laughs> but it was, it, the lease was nearly up. And at a certain stage, Gough Whitlam said to, I think, the American ambassador, well, we would in normal circumstances, you know, intend to, to renew the lease, but if you guys try to bounce us or whatever terms he used, then we would have to reconsider our position on, on Pine Gap. He said that, which is sort of really serious fighting words, but this is a, a very important American f facility without which uh, the modern wars could not be fought. They, they were real fighting words for the Americans, and I don't think Goff probably realised quite how seriously that was taken. And it did happen, by happenstance you can say, and as a result of many, many other factors, which is you need John Pilger to lay out <laughs> the circumstances, that a couple of days before the lease at Pine Gap ran out, a couple of days after Gough Whitlam revealed that the station, that the person administering Pine Gap was in fact the CIA station chief, the, the Labor, Whitlam Labor government came to an end. Now, it isn't just that simple because there's an enormous storm of press uh, coverage, a general sense that the Labor government were inept, which indeed sometimes they were corrupt, which they weren't, and had somehow done something terribly, terribly wrong. And it needed that, and it needed Malcolm Fraser, who was then the leader of the opposition, to oh, a Senate to deny supply to the elected government, which was un unconstitutional, but which the newspapers seemed to make okay. Need all those things for the Labour Party to be dismissed, really on the authority of the Governor General, the, the person who represented the Queen of England. The title of your book is Amnesia. Is it truly the case that, that these events have suffered from amnesia in the Australian collective consciousness? Yes, I believe it's sort of largely forgotten, not by everybody of the left, but largely forgotten. And if you think that the, the media were active players, and so and given that the media is there to say that anybody who thinks there was anything funny going on here was sort of paranoid conspiracy theorists and it's just ridiculous leftists, cappuccino drinking leftists, who've said this and made it sort of sound sort of silly that the United States would ever do such a thing to Australia. So that's one of the reasons we forget. And we also forget it because, because it's sort of impossible to accept. It's like, here's your wife. And somebody's saying she's been sleeping with this other man for 30 years? Well, that's not true because she's my wife. And so it was unthinkable for, for, for uh, Australians 
to confront the fact that our friend and ally had acted in a hostile manner towards us. It's not the kind of thing you can live with day to day. You can't keep that present in your mind and kind of get on with, with life with a, a, an easy conscience. Total denial. You know, we're, denial's there for a reason. helps us function. And so Australia sort of acted. This huge thing happened, and then we acted as if it didn't happen. And one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that when you look at Australian Labour Prime Ministers after that time, they had really good relationships with the United States. And I, I think the Labour Party learned it was absolutely essential to have a good relationship with the United States. And you couldn't do what members of that government had done and stand up and call certain, you know, American politicians or statesmen war criminals or murderers, which indeed did happen in, in the 70s, speaking about Vietnam and Cambodia and places like that. Uh, the Americans were not used to their client states sort of speaking in that particular way. And later, they didn't. I mean, as I was reading the book, I was thinking of a, a, a very recent possible parallel. If Scotland had become independent and had tried to clear nuclear weapons out, so I wonder what kind of international, well, behind the scenes American pressure would have been brought to bear. But I mean, that's maybe a tangent. But it, Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure but, it would have been absolutely. I mean, the one thing you can, when you look at the, the, the history of the United States and the in, international relationship, they've always been passionately <laughs> interested in the affairs of other countries. Sometimes, you know, they've tried to change the effect of history and sometimes they've been very successful doing it, you know. I mean, I think the, the history of, of Italy after the war, where, when, when the Italians generally wanted a social democratic government, Americans really mounted a major financial and PR campaign to make sure in the end that America got the sort of government in Italy that it wanted at that time. You know, and of course, Greece after the war, which was very, you know, look, looked like there would be you know, a leftist government. There could not be a leftist government because the United States and Britain, I think, for that matter, didn't want it and so on and so on and so on. So I'm sure the United States would have been terribly interested in Scotland. And I'm sure there was a whole, even as this was approaching, there must, there must have been bodies of whole office wings devoted to to Scotland uh, but I guess they've all been dismissed now so I don't know I mean Peter you've been based in the States for, for a, a long time now and I guess Australian politics there really doesn't feature on the radar but is this something that you have been has been sort of nagging away at you something that you've been thinking how do I how do I actually not put that into a novel because that's a, a rather crude way of putting it but is it is it something that you felt required expression in a novel for a long time well I was, I suppose you would, to put it politely, royally pissed that such a thing had happened in our country and that, that no one wanted to talk about it. And even when a film showed in Sydney, The Falcon and the Snowman, where the, Christopher Boyce was the young American who was so upset by what he saw the CIA was doing in Australia that he started being involved in this thing, selling secrets to the Russians. So you could even have a film like that showing in Sydney and no one would even mention that that, that had been said in, in the film. Oh yes, I was obsessed with it and I was angry and I did try to write a book. I did write a book which which had its its emotional centre or its engine in these events and it was called The Unusual Life of Tristan Smith. And because I didn't want to write a non-fiction book about it and I wanted to deal with all of those sort of feelings of the little country and the big country, the little country absolutely loving the big country to death and also being the victim of its commercial culture and also wanting to establish its own culture. 
So I, I wrote this story about this strange little creature who ends up going to live in the big country and, and, and dressed inside a, a mouse suit. And I had to invent parallel colonial cultures for the, you know, Africa and Vorstand and... and uh, in inventing a world which seems very, very liberating, you have to think, well, what, what, are, the, what are the trees? And are these the trees we know in, in, in the reality we inhabit? Can Shakespeare exist? And of course, you always want Shakespeare to exist, and so of course I decided Shakespeare did exist, but you get into a sort of slightly wobbly bit with invented countries and where you draw your map, but you can't put all the other countries in the world in there because they wouldn't really fit. Anyway, that was really all about 1975, and uh, that was not apparent when it was published in the United States. The the, the big country was called Vorstand, and it, and it had a, 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 a Dutch uh, heretical sect of who thought animals had souls were the sort of founding fathers and Africa was the little country. Oddly, the Americans continued to read that they were the little country because they were the little revolution. It was so extraordinary. And that Vorstein was, which anybody could see, you know, had its, at least its imaginary roots in, in the United States and Disneyland and all sorts of things. They rarely got the people. I was lucky in the United States in that so many of the critics were in fact Canadians. And the Canadians got this book big time. And, and it was so funny to read the book in Toronto. And the first words, you know, uh, the audience was laughing because they recognised what it was all about. But America doesn't see itself like that. America sees itself as the little country, you know, the, against George III and all the heinous Brits and not this big monstrous thing. And since then, I mean, and since 1975, the world has, has moved on and the nature of protest and resistance has changed radically, mm. which I guess enables this, this book, you know, to, to engage with a, a completely different yeah. set of, or interlocking perhaps, set of questions. Because in, in the 70s, what, what could you do? You could take to the streets, you could protest. Mm. But, but now... Yes, well, there's two forms of things. The forms of protest have certainly changed to the you know, degree that uh, people have hacked into computers as forms of protests, and, and the in, the individual citizen often has a power, can have power, something like a nation state, which is not quite. I mean, an, an individual probably can't generate the Stuxnet worm and 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 uh, therefore effectively silently stage. Bomb, bomb the Iranian nuclear facilities, but they can do things that are like that. And the the other thing that's happened is that we now know, and it's proven, the the the, the sort of things that a, a, an imperial power like the United States will and can do to its friends. We know a little bit about what they are now. WikiLeaks, Snowden, the things that I would be called paranoid for in. 1975 are clearly the way things work in the world now and we know that so we, we we're a lot more educated about what what certain governments have done and will do and so maybe this can can be read in this way i mean i, th I think pilger really did do terrific work on this and there's a great many readers who say john pilger's a great man and this is important but it stayed in the shadow really i think given the enormity of what was done. Because when you talk to Americans, they said, we what? We did that? And I said, well, you remember Chile? Yeah, we did that. It was awful. But we did that to you? Yes. So Americans, um, Americans that I know are appalled, interested, 
my friends in Australia said, isn't this an anti-American book? Well, it's anti-American. Half of the American population, <laughs> I think, would, would be interested and appalled that this had happened. It's not anti-American. It's anti the powers that operate in the United States. So, that, I mean, that's, that's all the political background and sort of the, the impetus for, for wanting to write about it. But as, an, as a novelist, what, what, was it, what was it you saw as your sort of the, the challenge of, of bringing this book together? I mean, I thought I'd written anything I was ever going to write about 1975, and I thought it was my least popular book, although I'm quite proud of it, really, but it's certainly... It was still there, and it was really when... Um, Julian Assange came to, came to the fore, and clearly, you know, this this is a hugely important figure in world history. Whether you like Assange or you don't like Assange or whatever you think, that's true. And uh, of course, he was Australian. And the thing that that interested me is firstly that no one in the United States had. And the fact that he was Australian didn't really matter. As a matter of fact, you know, he seemed to be he seemed to be a traitor. And how could you be a traitor to the United States if you were not a United States citizen? But so they, those borders get very sort of spongy. So they weren't really thinking about who he was or what his history. But now I didn't. I was never ever going to write a history or a biography or, or of Julian Assange. But I was I was interested that he was Australian, and I felt a great sense of a lot of his early history is very weird and involves sects and being on the run and so on. You weren't, you weren't going to write a history of him, but you were invited to, to write his oh, well, no, his life. Did, did that sort of kick kick your interest up a level well, firstly, novelistically? To clarify the invitation, <clears throat> Sonny Mader at Knopf is my editor, an old-time friend, and we were having this sort of conversation. And it went like this. You know, I said... My God, you know, he's important, I think. And he said, and that was at the time where they were thinking, commissioning someone to, to ghostwrite it. And, uh, and so he said, just in conversation, I don't suppose you'd be interested in writing about it. It wasn't really an offer. It was just a, a thing that happened in the flow of conversation. And we both agreed very quickly it was not a good idea. But for a second, did you think, oh, well, always a no question? I'm a novelist. You know, I'm really, really bad at... Uh, I have none of the skills or, or personal qualities that would make me a good person to write that sort of book. And also, typically as a novelist, I was writing something else anyway, and I wasn't going to stop doing that. But it wasn't really in the nature of an offer. And when it said, you know, I rejected the offer, you know, or it sounds like I had some objection to it, or that, you know, we'd gone into negotiations with an agent. None. Of, it was just a conversation between friends, but it was important to me. And Sonny also remembered it later. Uh, when I started to think about writing a novel. And I had the first thing I had to do was to really... I was just interested in the thing I thought... I think about Assange, and I don't know this is true, but I think his mother was of the left in that period, that he would have gone as a child. And his mother, I think, was politically active. So one could... wouldn't be hard to guess what her passions might have been and that he might have grown up with these passions too. That's the bit I was interested in, not the enormity of his life or where he went or what he did, but that was the bit that I grabbed onto. And the first thing I had to decide was that it was absolutely not going to be him. And, you know, you do this, first of all, by 
you know, creating somebody that's very unusual in the world of hacking, and it's a, it's a female hacker. There are a lot, 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 lot more female hackers than there were, and there have always been some, but generally it's been a smelly boys sort of farting boys in the back of, back of vans um, or over their computers at home. So I had to invent her, and then I'd always just go, I had to go back into her family history, and then I had to find the person who would be writing about it. And um, in many respects, the, 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 the journalist, the journalist is shaped by the requirement that he's going to have to be sort of like a fictional narrator. So the most important quality that, I, that, that Felix, dear Felix, the, the journalist has to have is that he, he be unreliable and that he be known to have made a story better when he really didn't quite have all the facts. That was a thing I really needed if I was going to write the book I needed. So the book really begins by feel with Felix's disgrace, unemployable, once more sort of, you know, for the last time sued in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, unemployable, and which he thinks is ridiculous. He's the last decent left-wing journalist in the country. He can be sued for reporting a rumour. He says, you know, rumours, it's like smoke, smoke and a landscape. You report the smoke because it's, that's what's going on. So that was the beginning of Felix, and um, who I feel enormous affection for, sort of slightly boastful, rather cowardly, but quite good person. And in the, in, 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 in the end, he is probably who he wants to be. And then I had to build up the circumstances of his life and what 75 meant to him. And I had to invent this young woman who would be born at the, uh, at the time of the overthrow of the government and her family. I loved the challenge that Felix had been set. I loved the material which he'd been given and, and how he was forced to grapple with it in increasingly absurd circumstances on, a, on an old manual typewriter and sort of being fed like a, like a zoo animal and being kept, you know, his major concern when he's abandoned up the, the Hawkesbury River is, will he, you know, what will the quality of the red wine be that he uses <laughs> to sustain himself? Well, like, so, hey, occasionally <laughs> the weaknesses of the author come through. <laughs> the author thinking about being there having to drink this awful wine. So, we, uh, although the book is in no sense autobiographical, certain, certain elements, uh, the wine, the concern for the quality of the wine being one, which is, I hope, done comically. Also, I threw in a whole lot of stuff, really, from my life, like Felix, like I come from a little town called Bacchus Marsh and a car dealership and, and went to Monash University in a certain year. And I did that, uh, I suppose, because one reason is that I can locate things in time. You know, I, I remember what it was to be there. But another thing that's a bit more mischievous, because every book I've written, whether I've written about, you know, the sort of neurasthenic Oscar of Oscar and Lucinda, so, or the great burly, brawling Butcher Bones in Theft Love Story, people decide that they're me. So I just thought I'd give another version of people who could think was me. And, and, and of course, if you have someone, they, they, people are thinking of me, and you say you know, that they're sort of, they're, they're cowardly and unreliable, they're inclined to believe you. <laughs> Where if you'd said he was you know, tall and handsome and, 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 a, and, and a hero on the battlefield, they'd think I was being self-aggrandizing. Anyway, it was fun to use stuff from my past for Felix. Uh, and I'm not Felix, of course. But uh, it was nice to write about him. There's a lot of I, I enjoyed writing about the, 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 those characters. I also enjoyed. You said I lived in New York for a long time. It was really rather wonderful to, to sort of do this time traveling thing, to be in Australia, and and to find these things that I thought I'd forgotten or couldn't remember very well, 
and that I could remember and and that I had quite intense you know visual recall and then to put those together with with quite a lot of research and finding people to talk to uh, was thrilling. Tell me about the world of hacking was that something you had to do a lot of research to sort of understand the, the mindset or did that come quite easily? Well I always think that if you you know whatever it is what you're really interested in is your characters and your characters motivations and you want to know what what drives your character what makes them get up what what's going to matter to them and whether that's sort of you know you're in the 19th century uh, building an automaton or doing this sort of thing still you've got to find out what they want I knew nothing and I knew by the end of it I would have to produce something which might not represent the typical world of, of, of a hacker's history but might be credible as a particular if eccentric path and the thing that I I went into it like a writer not like a tech person I began doing something which is quite anachronistic really where I was thinking of the journey for them sort of starts with, with a, a tech a text adventure game called Zork and the thing that I could imagine as a writer is that if they could get into this, they can they could rewrite the narrative of the game. And I, as a writer, could imagine them doing that and taking control of doing that. And and, and the sort of tech historical problem, of course, is is that Zork comes from sort of an earlier period than where I want to get them into. Uh, there was a wonderful artificial intelligence woman, at, a professor at Hunter College, where I worked, who was really very patient with me and, and taught me and. Indeed, some of the the, the uh, code that's in the book she wrote for me, and then a, a guy from Google who, who basically liked reading science fiction and that sort of thing, wasn't very interested in literary fiction, but was a very very good, highly successful tech person in Google. And he read the book for me three times, and he'd say things like, "No way, no way, that's going to happen," you know. And so I'd say, "Well." Tell me, you know, what if I wanted to do this? He was really sweet and, and very patient and spent a lot of his time guiding me through, teaching me what I needed to know, which is still not enough. I mean, I couldn't sit down and have a serious conversation with a hacker, but I can produce a work of fiction that's right in its weird imaginings and will sort of work. So... I did an awful lot of neurotic work trying to understand these things. I've, I've produced something that should work uh, for people in that community, even though they would have to say it's a very weird way to, you know, to go into this story, but it's, I hope it's possible, it's credible. They're not embarrassed to read it, perhaps. As a, as a sort of former publisher, it's, there's quite a lot of you can describe between the lines about how publishing has changed. I mean, the book opens more or less with um, Felix coming home and, and setting fire to books which he's been ordered to destroy. And at the end, you know, the work that he has written, which appears in the book, is, is put out in the internet potentially to tens of millions of people. I mean, were you also, was that also something that you were sort of playing with intellectually? Now, how, how publishing, how, how someone who's sitting writing something, be it on an Olivetti or on a, on a keyboard, actually communicates with a potentially vast readership? I wasn't actually thinking about that, but the thing I was thinking about, that, because at a certain stage in writing this, I thought, oh, my God, what I want is the book to be the worm, that if the book can be released, it holds within it malware, and so if it's released 
you know, say it's a whole lot of PDF PDF files. Each one of those files can have a targeted effect. So the the, the notion of the book as as being the thing that you know familiarly and whatever, but also as, as an of, agent, yes, of, of something. Yes, it's an agent of change, or it's an agent. It's, it's an agent of war, if you like. I found that very very appealing. Uh, it was quite quite late in the game. I thought, oh my God, Felix, Felix is going to sell millions of books <laughs> or he's going to reach he might not sell them because i don't think he, he really benefits in that way but uh, but, he, but he's going to suddenly have millions of readers in the time between he walks back from a car park on the road into a motel in that period the number of hits so that that, that made me sort of a, it is it is like a, a writer's wet dream in a way that you know this this is what happens but, uh, is, is hacker is the kind of ultimate fulfillment of that of that dream of the writer, isn't it? To yes. actually have an impact yes. and to know you've had an impact Absolutely. on a lot of people. Yes, it is indeed exactly that. In conclusion, Peter, I mean, how how do you see the, the shifts in the opportunities for protests since the seventies? I, th- I think one of the the interesting things that we're facing right at this moment is there is now in the hands of individual activists and citizens the power to reach huge numbers of people, vast amounts of machinery in the interests of political change. And, and so in, a, in one way, it's uh, like we, we are, the individual citizen can be in a sense the, the equal in power to our nation state, which is sort of a dizzying sort of thing to think about. That doesn't make me feel particularly optimistic. It's sort of one of those things that for a moment there's a blip in time when maybe good can be done. I think that our whole dependence upon technology eventually is going to come completely unstuck. You, you, what would happen tomorrow you know, if, if the internet went down in the world? What would be the consequences for, for world civilization? It's unthinkable. Governments with enormous numbers of people for them working for them can do things in secret and the media will not report them. I don't, that doesn't feel like we're too far ahead in the world of protest to me. Uh, and I think its instability is becoming more and more obvious every day. So I don't know where this really leads us. Into another novel, I think. I was talking to Peter Carey about Amnesia, which is out this November in hardback. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll find a short video featuring Peter talking about the book filmed on the Faber Fire Escape. You can make sure you never miss this podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.